Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's, yeah, <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh, I want to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. It's Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast Time. Hi there, all my David with Ken Erty. Hey on, how are you? I'm good, Ken. You're straight back fresh from Martin O'Neill's squad announcements. Yeah. The Poland game. Martin O'Neill um, down at Bank of Ireland in, in Grand Canal Square, just by the theatre there. Um, they were there because Bank of Ireland were announcing a little sponsorship deal with the FAI, four-year deal. They are going to be the official financial services partner and sponsor of the post-primary schools cup competitions. So that's why I was in their premises. Martin O'Neill was announcing the squad for the polling game, a provisional squad, a 34-man provisional squad. So we looked through and thought, hmm, yeah, there's uh, Stephen Arter from Bournemouth. Yeah, he's a new player. Where's Wes Hillen? Is he injured? Is Wes injured? Uh, no, he, he scored. Uh, he scored against Millwall just the other day. There's no sign of Wes Hulin in the squad. That's controversial. What's Wes Hulin done? What's Wes Hulin done to be cast out from the squad again? Did he not play reasonably well in the game against Germany? You know, when he, when he came on as a substitute? Uh, turned out he'd just been left out by, because they forgot to put him on there. He, <laughs> he was always in the squad. All it was right. just, unfortunately, they printed out a document without his name. But then they handed out a new document, a 35-man <laughs> original squad, which did include Wes Hulin. So... Are you sure it wasn't just that Martin O'Neill got the rumblings of discontent from the media and thought, oof, this is, this is a bit controversial. I better go and put Wes back in there. No, Mar- Martin O'Neill uh, pointed the finger squarely at the FAI communications <laughs> department. <laughs> He's always been in my plans. He said, I'm not, I'm not sure about these guys. <laughs> but uh, he's, he was always part of my plans. You were so. paying strict attention to what the Ireland manager was saying at all times during the press conference? I'm trying to tee you up for a story here, Ken. I'm not sure if you want to tell it on air or not. Look, um, I was, I was, uh, I was there. I, I mean, this Hulahan thing was obviously a sensation. It was, it was a Twitter sensation. Everybody had tweeted, Hulahan not in squad. And then moments later, Hulahan back, uh, clerical error. So uh, while Martin O'Neill was, was going through a couple of initial questions, which I have to say, you know, it, it, these things usually take a little bit of time to, to get warmed up. Um, I was uh, my eye was wandering over this list of tweets, and I saw the latest 
Uh, one of the things that caught my eye was the latest from David Squires, the very good cartoonist, uh, whose stuff you can see on The Guardian these days. And so I clicked on David Squires' uh, latest opus. Let me just click on it here, Ken, so that I have it in front of me. So uh, I was I was just looking down through it, and obviously it, w- it was kind of filling my my screen. I was sitting f- towards the back. I mean, let me let me describe the scene. On there's a lot of journalists uh, sitting on these small stools, like you might find in a, in a primary school. Uh, yeah. Actually, when I first arrived, l- glancing through the the window and sort of trying to figure out how to open the door, which was for some reason locked. Um, I initially thought, hang on, this can't be right. This looks like a, a crash. Um, <laughs> and then it turned out, no, this was, in fact, the, the venue. So I was sitting on one of these small stools with my computer in my lap. Um, just thought, well, I'll click on that. You know, I, I'm pretty sure he's not saying much at this point. And I was uh, scrolling down over this latest David Squires cartoon until um, I got to the last frame. Do you have it there in front of you? I have the last frame in front of me, Ken. I, I mean, it's probably, it's a bit difficult to explain a, the full cartoon, but... This this final frame, there's a a bald gentleman yeah. with a sort of sheepskin coat. Yeah, uh, he's got a he's got a little goatee going on. Yeah, uh, he, he looks like he looks a little sinister. I got to be honest, but uh, the, the strangest, the most notable part of the this particular part of the cartoon is that he has what appears to be a penis on his head. Yeah, uh, he does. Kind of growing out of the top of his head. Growing out of the top of his head. I mean, similarly sized to the one that got uh, the the false one that got jammed in the ear of the Sky Sports News reporter. Um, on transfer deadline day uh, last year, so I mean, I, you know, I, I chuckled, <laughs> and uh, for some reason, turned my head to the right. Whereupon I saw the unexpected figure of FAI Chief Executive John Delaney <laughs> appearing to just at that moment avert his eyes from my screen with a smirk. Now I don't know if he was just laughing along, if he was just laughing along with the David Squires humor, but the fact was. I was sitting there at Martin O'Neill's press conference appearing to look at a picture of a man uh, with uh, genitalia growing from, his, <laughs> growing from his head for whatever reason. I mean, I remember it was, uh, it was Chris Bascom of the, of the Daily Telegraph who was at, I think, Old Trafford and uh, some fan in the, in the crowd behind him took a photograph uh, from behind him of showing basically, oh, this is, so this is what they do at games. And it was, uh, you just saw the reporter there, but there's a laptop screen in front. And uh, the game is obviously taking place out in front, you know, a titanic struggle between Liverpool and Manchester United. And uh, on his uh, screen is just the Google image search of just showing all these little dogs. <laughs> it's just showing dog after dog. And uh, he later explained that he was trying to find out what the precise breed of dog was that Marwan Fellaini reminded him of. He wasn't just sitting there looking at pictures of dogs while uh, while Manchester United and Liverpool were... Uh, but, you know, these things happen. In were, the, yeah. That's the game. You know what I'm saying? You were rumbled again. You were. It looked as though, it looked as though at, that, at that time, maybe you could have been excused for thinking, this guy is not one of the most serious journalists. This guy is not right at the very top of his profession. You know, when I compare it to the other guys in the room. But, you know, sometimes that's just the way it looks rather than the way it is. Time for Ken Early's Report on Sport. Small matter of a Champions League elimination for Chelsea, Ken, which we haven't even touched on yet. Yeah, well, I mean, I loved this game. I loved this game last night. Despite the nastiness, the I loved it. physical and emotional cruelty dished out by both teams. It was horrible. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was awful, but it was... It was great. You know, it was two really nasty teams. 
cut, you know, you, you rarely see that, you know, you you rarely see a game of such nastiness. I mean, it was amazing there was only really one red card in the game because, you know, Diego Costa should have been sent off, David Luiz should have been sent off. Um, I mean, there's probably others that I, you know, I'm missing thinking about. There was just such a kind of snarling, aggression, posturing, cheating, uh, all of the bad things in football when they all happen together are hugely entertaining. You know, it's like it's it's like these things are also part of the game and it is they also do provide spectacle it's like saying oh you know i you know to say no i only want to watch matches which feature lots of good football and sporting behavior is a bit like saying you know i only want to watch movies which kind of are happy you know like comedies i don't want to watch a movie where something sad happens or something bad happens you know what i mean you want to watch it maybe it depends on your mood but the point is that there's all there's different kinds of movies some some of them have really you know, uplifting content or amusing content. Some of them have dark, dark material. And this was one of those. And, I mean, everything, you know, from the sending off as well. The, the, the story of the game is essentially Paris Saint-Germain overcoming an injustice. I mean, not as though Paris Saint-Germain are like... Uh, <laughs> Paris Saint-Germain are a bit like Clint Eastwood in Unforgiven, you know? It's not exactly, you know, clean hands. It's not as though this guy's 100% innocent, like he's never done any bad things in his life. But he is avenging an injustice. And that's, you know, he, he's, you know, maybe in order to create the omelette of justice, he might have to break a few eggs. Or pretty much any Denzel Washington role. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the sort of the, the, the dirty hero who, you know, his cause is ultimately just. And this was Paris Saint-Germain. And, and they were made into that by this sending off of Zlatan Ibrahimovic, mm-hmm. which was a really strange... I mean, I thought it was a really awful decision. I mean, I think this is clear. This is a clear yellow card, right? It's got to be a yellow card. It's The referee had no doubt that it was a red card, which proved that he didn't see it properly. Now, I think the referee's mind was actually made up. You saw this picture of the Chelsea players all crowd... Every Chelsea player, apart from Courtois, is all, they're all in the frame, the TV frame. And it's, it's actually an amazing shot. Uh, someone tweeted this to me last night on the... You know, having taken a photograph of their TV, it's an amazing shot. You see all the different, uh, the, all the different Chelsea players and what they're doing. You see Oscar at the bottom right hand side lying there. Poor little, little Oscar. <laughs> right? Will he ever get up again? Fortunately, the answer to that is yes. You see Eden Hazard, <laughs> face on Eden Hazard. You know, just standing there. What? Like, what's going on here? Fabregas just beside him. You see John Terry, obviously, right, getting right into the referee's personal space. You see every Chelsea player, with the exception of the goalkeeper, Thibaut Courtois, has got into the frame of this photograph of the television yeah, sent to me by at Dunnyballs84. Thanks, Dunnyballs. I think he was the originator of this photograph. You know, it was, it was everywhere. Everyone was, everyone was tweeting this photograph after a while. On It went viral in Sweden. Uh, I was trying to figure out what it was, and then I realized, oh, it's Latan, of course. Yeah, I kind of forgot that. Jose Enrique, the Liverpool player, was like, look, says it all, doesn't it? You know, when you see, when you see these 10 Chelsea players, you see Azpilicueta. Azpilicueta, who, who we all we thought of as, you know, Azpilicueta, he's like, a, you know, the Spanish Steve Finnan. You know, there he is. Ah, Zlatan's got to go, ref. You see John Terry. He's right there. He's invading the referee's personal space. He's got his, he's got his bulging uh, chest muscles up, pressing against the referee. Do something, ref. Do something. You've got, you've got Matic sort of lumbering into shot. You've got Ivanovic coming in. Oh, ref. You know, you know the game's gone, ref. You know, if, if we're going to let that happen, the game's gone. You know, you've got Gary Cahill there trying to back up John Terry, not quite sure. Uh, you've got Ramirez standing there with an expression of utter disbelief. I can't believe that just happened. Ref, can you... 
I can't believe you're going to let him get away with that, ref. Eden Hazard is standing there. You know, palms raised to the sky. Referee, what's going on? And then you've got Fabri- Fabregas sort of flitting around the side, you know. Apparently Fabregas, moments after this was taken, having appealed to the referee to send off Satan, then went and commiserated with Satan. Oh, tough break. Yeah. I don't think he should have been sent off there. So that's a kind of an almost Richard Hammondy um, persona there from, from Fabregas, where he's kind of trying to take both sides simultaneously. You'd probably have to listen to Stuart Lee's take on Richard Hammond. Uh, but, you know, he's trying to kind of have a boat ways. Right in the foreground of this photo, you see Diego Costa, who's actually the only Chelsea player who's a blur because he's moving towards Zlatan Ibrahimovic, like uh, one of the creatures from 28 Days Later. And he's going to, uh, you know, he, he's, he's obviously gonna, going to make his views down. So the referee in the middle of all this is like, I'm trying to get the red card. He, I've got the red card out. Please, if you just, please, if you just give me a second, red card. I think Satan got himself sent off, not by the tackle, but by his reaction to the tackle. Yeah, his reaction wasn't good. And I know I'm in a, I'm in a minority of three here again. Myself, Dietmar Hamann, and John Giles. Yeah. The, the three of us feel that this sending off was justified. Uh, what I was struck by was the, the immediate Twitter reaction, which was, and you were one of the people tweeting it, uh, and you're backing it up now, that this was a ridiculous decision, absolutely crazy red card. I, initially, I thought in real time it looked like a red card. And after about 50 replays that I've seen now, I see the argument people are making that he pulled out. Fair enough. But I still think it's quite a debatable one. I don't think a red is a complete miscarriage of justice. And actually, people are getting, whether the ref was influenced by the Chelsea players' reaction or not, I think people watching it were influenced by the Chelsea players' reaction Mm. as an influence into thinking, oh, they've got him sent off. But when you look at the actual foul, it's a bit like you see a lot of these yellow cards and red cards being given in rugby at the moment when a ball is kicked up in the air. Players chasing it at a height. The fullback usually, or somebody in the in the in the back line of the team, is jumping up to catch it, and that's quite a dangerous moment. At that stage, even if you if you're running at full tilt, you, it's, it's not just a matter of pulling out; it's a matter of actually stopping. Really, you can say, "Oh, I pulled out," but you've actually gone so far, you've mistimed it. So even even though you pull out, you can still generally that'll save you from a red card, but it'll probably still be a yellow if you're not. It'll still be seen as reckless play. I think that's what that was with Slatan. Okay, he pulled out at the end. But it was still a fairly stupid lunge. Yeah. Uh, he didn't get too close to, to taking the ball, and he could potentially, despite pulling out, have actually injured the Oscar. He could have, and that's what he thought he'd done. Oscar sort of obviously, you know, reacted as though you know his, his, it had been a kind of Aaron Ramsey or Eduardo type injury that he'd sustained, and that was his, that was his immediate reaction. You know, fair enough. Um, but Zlatan reacted as though, oh. You know, he 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 actually thought, "Oh no, I've actually, I've I've seriously injured." This you guy. think it definitely shouldn't have been a red? Though. I don't think. You don't I think that's why you have yellow cards. You know, the player. You know, you could argue Zatan is taking a is taking a risk, but it's not a it's not a dangerous tackle. You know, he's not injured the opponent. He's not really. He hasn't he hasn't really gone in properly. If the, I think if the referee sees that properly, there's no way he sends off Zatan. You know what I mean? He he he's he's saying, "Oh, there's a big collision." Oh, Zatan. Oh, he's twice the size of that guy. Oh, look how badly injured the guy is. Yes, yes, Chelsea players, come on. I'm going to do the decent thing. You know, that's something like this happened. It, it took him two seconds to pull out the red guard. He was instantly decided. Um, I thought it was a bad decision. Um, and Mourinho said the same thing afterwards, although you can't, you know, 
Uh, I Mourinho mean, said that. What, he, 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 also loves, said, he loves well, Zlatan, of course. Yeah, I love Zlatan. Yeah, Zlatan. Zlatan is an honest man. He told me he wasn't malicious. So maybe they should rescind that. But they should probably ban, ban David, David Luiz instead <laughs> because he should have been sent off. It yeah. just seemed to suit the Mourinho post-match I think so. etiquette. Um, but, but, I mean, let's, let's talk about the actual match here because so PSG came by. Honestly, two of the best-headed goals I can remember seeing. Just magnificent, magnificent goals from David Luiz and from Thiago Silva. Uh, and talk about seizing the moment. You know, from, these, from the moment that that went off, you thought, these two guys, who obviously were slaughtered roundly after the World Cup, and Thiago Silva was not part of the 7-1, remember, and if he had been, maybe it would have been a little bit different. Um, but these, these are players who are seriously capable of raising their game. Uh, you know, and David Luiz's problem that people that have with, people really have with him is inconsistency. You know what I mean? Inconsistency of performance. Uh, inconsistency of concentration, but he is capable of raising his game more than any other cent- central central defender I can actually think of playing in the world. I mean, hey, I wouldn't what, go what along. Am I capable of raising his game? I think when David Luiz really wants to win a game, when he's when he's really kind of gets into, it, I think Diego Costa kind of helped him reach that sort of the, between the red card and Costa kind of niggling him and turning it into a personal thing. I think he's mentally very strong. Some of the time, <laughs> is it not part of his problem? Which might though, sound like an oxymoron. Oxymor. Yeah, it's part of the problem. Not that he, he gets needled to the point that actually he loses control of what he's supposed to be doing. He starts spraying those. He even did it. He can't play a game without doing this. But he sprayed a few of those forty yarders. Yeah. to nowhere in particular when really they needed a little bit of composure. Overall, clearly he contributed positively. Well, you know, yeah, he's, he's making, like, I mean, when, when the equaliser, you know, he plays a really important part in the build-up to the equaliser that he scored by winning ball uh, in Chelsea's half or, you know, coming out and intercepting one of these aimless balls that Chelsea are hacking clear, getting that ball immediately out to the left-hand side. And he creates, I think he's the one who gets it to Pastore for Pastore to then cross it, Courtois, kind of spooned it back over the bar and then David Luiz scored the header. You know, this is the kind of thing you get from David Luiz that you don't get from John Terry and you don't get from Gary Cahill, the kind of defenders that Jose Mourinho prefers. And what we saw was the poverty of Chelsea's play. Diego Costa was shattered, physically shattered. You could see this in extra time. His, his, he's trying to do little moves, step overs, but he's obviously exhausted. The shot, he had a shot from the edge of the box, um, which he just, you know, it's, it goes 20 yards wide and 20 yards high. You know, it's, it's the, the shot of an exhausted player. Cesc Fabregas is just a wisp, a, a wisp of air f- flo- floating pointlessly around in midfield. No, no influence on the game. Nemanja Matic, you saw him go off. He was completely shattered. I mean, he, he, Mourinho said he'd only trained. Uh, he was, he'd only trained one day, I should say. He said everyone else was trained normally because he, he was seeking to avoid... People were asking questions. Jose, are your players not really tired because you picked the same team in every game for the first half of the season and now you're kind of paying the consequence of that? No. Normal training process. You know, he wasn't going to accept any uh, any blame on that account. It wasn't going to be, well, you know, maybe even consider that. No, he's yeah. like, no, it's the only Maddox. And Maddox came off, you know, absolutely wrecked, injured, um, battered. And, you know, there, there, wasn't, there wasn't anything left. But, I mean, the fact is, you're playing against 10 men. For an hour in in normal time, and there's nothing. They created nothing. I mean, that is that's embarrassing. Uh, Mourinho talks about set pieces and a team that lets in two goals from corners didn't deserve to win. They were the better team. Paris Paris deserved to win. We couldn't defend set pieces. You don't deserve to. You deserve to lose. But there's more than one way to win a game. For instance, it's possible to win a game by scoring more than 
one goal more than the other team. It is actually possible to win a game by more than one goal. You know, and, and it's as though Mourinho never even considers that. There's never any sort of sense. There was never a sense with him when this sending off happened. Okay, well, that's, you know. It, you, you, as Mourinho himself used to talk about incessantly, when Barcelona were playing a team, Guardiola Barcelona were playing a team that had a man sent off, forget it. Inter Milan was the, well, when he, when he was coaching Inter against Barcelona. Inter was, was the exception, a yeah. famous exception. And even Inter were clinging on, you know, by their fingernails, defending a two-goal lead and lost eventually by one goal to nil. Um, but, you know, Usually, if you're defend, if 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 you're in a position against a team like that, they're going to pick you apart. And this was, you know, Mourinho would always complain when Real Madrid lost to Barcelona. Uh, we, well, what is it? They, they, we seem to have a man sent off every game. That's why we lose all the time. You know, it must be what is it? UNICEF, you know, UEFA, their their influence. But one way or another, when you play against Barcelona, you play with ten men, and you can't win. You can't win with ten men. You know what I mean? Last night, it's a totally different thing. It's like, well, I've played with ten men in the Champions League. You feel no pressure. He says that you know he's saying this. It's it's like. Uh, you know, it's uh, whereas that we suddenly the pressure was on us. The pressure is not on you. The pressure, the onus is on you to go and win the game, sure. But that should be something that you want to do now. It should be well, we've got these guys where they want, where we want them. Their, you know, sort of leader has been sent off. This, the, you know, their most dangerous attacking player is gone. It's a huge blow to their morale. They're not going to be able to attack in any effective kind of way. Now is the time for us <laughs> to go and pulverize them. And show what a good team we are, and that's I think what a what a what a Guardiola team does in that in that circumstance. It thinks okay, whereas Mourinho's team almost became more fearful. It was a case of well, we better not lose now because it's going to be really embarrassing losing to ten men. We better not take any risks whatsoever. Take risks, you know. It's it's not always easier to not concede goals than it is to score them. We talked about this last week though. We were chatting with Chelsea maybe it was two weeks ago how they. Mourinho's teams will always go this way, even when they promise that not Let's not forget Chelsea at stages this season, certainly early in the season, looked absolutely amazing. And I think I still think I saw some people saying Hazard played poorly last night. I thought Hazard was, was very a, good. Like he's the one guy who was still carrying. Yeah. I don't know what people expect from him. He was beating a man every time and playing these clever balls. Yeah, he, wasn't, what he, he wasn't losing the ball. He was making things happen. Yeah. But largely, they, uh, they, they revert to this kind of football. Uh, and it's just a matter of they're now reverting to this kind of football and they maybe don't have the personnel to... See, the, see those kind of games through. It certainly seems that way. Maybe not with an exhausted Fabregas and an exhausted Costa. I mean, I, I do think, though, I mean, remember Sam Allardyce's thing uh, from a few weeks back, which we've repeatedly cited, where he talked about the different kinds of managers, the Fergusons, the Mourinho's, the Allardyce's versus the Rogers's, the Wenger's, the, you know, the first group being those who adapt from game to game, who try to find tailored solutions to a specific game, and the others being the ones who just do the same thing all the time. I think he put Mourinho in the wrong camp. Mourinho should be in the other camp. It's only one. It's only ever one way, you know. I mean, Abramovich sacked Mourinho the first time because he got bored with the team. He got bored with watching a team that didn't want to attack, didn't want to entertain. Uh, given that he's a billionaire, what else does he want from his team? That's all he wants. You saw the you saw the, the, the image of him last night in his box. He's sitting. You see that woman he's sitting next to, Dasha Zhukova is her name. He's she's his girlfriend. Uh, you know, she's a, what does she do? She's an art collector. She's, she's, you know, uh, apparently in her own right, a very, you know, successful art collector, obviously backed by a certain amount of uh, wealth from the Abramovich funds, also a very important one, you know, one who commands respect. She goes to Los Angeles, New York, Moscow, anywhere she goes, the art world is saying, oh, you know, do you know Dash is in town? I've never seen a woman look more bored. 
I've never seen a woman look more bored and miserable than Dasha Zhukova in the 118th minute of that Champions League game. What are they talking about after the game? This is an artistic woman, right? She's into, you know, conceptual art. She's into art of all kinds. Hopefully it'll go up in value. But the most important thing is it's art. She's, into, she's an aesthetic person. And she seems to be the main confidant of Roman Abramovich. Jose Mourinho laughs in the face of art. He goes into the take gallery and kicks over the stuff. <laughs> That's the, you know he, he he posts on Instagram him you know buying paintings and burning them. That's what he thinks of the art world. That's what he thinks of art for art's sake of, of the aesthetic principle. He's a results oriented man, and results oriented man needs to get results. All right. Well, uh, we'll get back to that in a short while with Jonathan Wilson. But there was some other Champions League. Got on, get a few other decent stories, including Bayern hammering in a few goals, and not to mention Real Madrid uh, scraping through. Well, the Real Madrid was amazing. I mean, again, I mean, the you know, they never really looked at Real. Although there was moments when they did look at risk. I think this they could actually get knocked out here. Ultimately, not because Ronaldo, you know, has to make it all about him again. Uh, by scoring two goals he just refuses to accept that it might be a different story and then at the end is standing there wounded pride did you see the amazing image? absolutely amazing that was amazing he yeah. scored the two goals are you not entertained that's what Ronaldo was saying it's exactly that scene are you not entertained looking around at the at the Bernabeu with just open contempt for the 90,000 supporters and saying well you know what 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 do you expect from me maybe Ronaldo's sheer peak and frustration with Real Madrid fans can actually drive them to another Champions League. He might be able to do it. Well, he scored the two goals almost in a sulk. Almost as though, do I have to do this again? Will, can somebody else not give us a dig out and get us through to the next round? Then he, as you say, he posed as he did after the match, refused to speak to the media afterwards and sent them a message saying, I won't be speaking to you guys. Ever again. Certainly not for, <laughs> for the rest of the season. I mean, we were talking to Dermot Well, Corrigan. I'm not even sure why that is. Because well, it's been a little bit... Oh, yeah. They, they, they've done the poll. Yeah. They, they had this poll. 32% or whatever it is of Real Madrid fans think Ronaldo should be dropped. Uh, but we were talking to, to Dermot on Monday, and he mentions the fact that, well, nobody ever really says, no one ever openly says in a press conference, oh, Ronaldo's not playing that well. It's just, it's just not said. But this poll, this poll apparently wasn't up. Now you can see why nobody says it, because if a poll that says that is, is enough to prompt this reaction from Ronaldo, then, yeah, he's not a guy who, who takes criticism well. And to be fair, he probably looks at his record and thinks, I shouldn't really be getting criticised that harshly. <laughs> I should not be the first in line to get a custard pie in the face whenever we don't get a result. So, you know, it was it was an amazing spectacle. Uh, Arsenal briefly. That was Monday night. That was. Uh, I, I didn't expect. I didn't. I again, did not expect this. I expected Manchester United's sheer know-how in these matches to get them through, and it turns out that I'm I'm thinking of a fossil. I'm thinking of a. a me- it's a memory of Manchester United that I have, that that was deluding me into thinking. That they could. Arsenal turned up, played a similar standard of game to the, the one that they played at Manchester City, uh, scored a couple of decent goals. I mean, I think the Welbeck goal was good. It was a good opportunism. You know, not everybody necessarily would have scored from that position. And Manchester United just had nothing to come back. I mean, it's a pity this game happened a couple of days ago. We'll, we, maybe we'll get back to it again later in this podcast. That's the end of Kennedy's Report on Sport.
Let's talk more about Chelsea. Paris Saint-Germain, uh, Jonathan Wilson joins us. Jonathan, it's often telling to start at the end with the uh, Chelsea performances. Jose Mourinho after the match said, when a team cannot defend two corners and concedes twice from corners, that team doesn't deserve to win. When a team cannot cope with the pressure of being with one player more, playing at home, and the stadium doesn't accept the team controlling the game, uh, we couldn't cope with that pressure. It seems he's, uh, I don't know, reading between the lines there, It seems, or just reading the lines, he's having a pop at his own players and the fans. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I mean, I, I think having got his own players is, is probably more justifiable. But it was a very strange. It was, it was a very strange night in that you sort of thought Chelsea had won it three times. That you thought they'd won it as soon as Latan was sent off. You thought they won it when they took the lead the first time, and you thought they won it when they took the lead the second time. And it seemed perfectly set up for Mourinho's side that you just kill the game, you sit back, you wait, you pick pick the opposition off and then break what they're supposed to be very, very good at and what they were very, very good at last season. And then at the end of the game, suddenly you realise PSG have gone through. And there was that sort of weird mood of anxiety that each of those three incidents was sort of a five-minute five period afterwards when everybody sort of settled down and thought, OK, Chelsea are going through. And then slowly the realisation dawned that they weren't in control of the game. So I, I, I take Mourinho's point that there was a sort of anxiety around the crowd. But I, I think that was created by, by the lack of control on the pitch, which I think was um, a very odd thing. And I, I, was, I, was, I was about to say it's very uncharacteristic, but I think the weird thing this season about Chelsea is that it's, it's not uncharacteristic for them that um, of their probably their eight biggest games, they've taken the lead in six of them and failed to win them. Yeah, I mean... There are two components to that. I mean, what Mourinho says is, uh, you know, a team that can't defend two corners doesn't deserve to win. He's criticising the defending. But what about the attacking? I mean, this is a team that is playing against 10 men for 90 minutes at home and doesn't create a chance, scores a goal from a corner uh, with, with a centre half and scores a penalty and has no other chances. That's also a reason why Chelsea are not in the next round. It is, but I, I think that's actually a corollary to the lack of control. That um, an element of panic crept in very, very quickly, and that's because Chelsea didn't control the middle of midfield, which is what you expected them to do. And you know, that's added to the fact that every time PSG broke, and I don't think they're doing anything particularly complicated. I mean, a lot of the time, especially after the red card, it was it was pretty direct balls aimed at Cavani to to go and chase, and Chelsea looked vulnerable. So. Yeah, there was a deficiency going forward, but I think that was created by the failure just to just to control the game, which which is the oddity because that is what Chelsea is supposed to be good at and what they have been good at in the past. Well, I mean, one one reason why it struck me watching it last night, and I actually went to rewatch the the last forty minutes or so because it was one of those. Kind of yeah. <laughs> uh, and one of the reasons why Chelsea don't control the game is maybe because every time the ball comes to one of their defenders, they try to they boot the ball fifty yards up the field and give it away. I mean, there's literally, there's no effort. I mean, Jose Mourinho has been smirking all season about how cunning he was to offload David Luiz for £50 million, which was actually £40 million to Paris Saint-Germain. And he's got Gary Cahill in his defence, a man with, with very little footballing ability. And I think we saw last night why, why sometimes it's better to have David Luiz than Gary Cahill. So, well, there the may be an argument for David Luiz type player. I, th- I think you can understand why he... he Luis doesn't fit into Mourinho team. Why he doesn't trust him? And I, I, I think because he tries to pass the ball out from the back. I mean, you can, you can, all these things are linked. You can't say, well, we don't, we don't control the game, but then every time you've got the ball at the back, you give it away. 
Well, I'd accept that. I'm not sure that we can rewrite history and pretend that Luis is is, is the person that, that, that Chelsea are missing. I think Luis's deficiencies defensively, his deficiencies in concentration, his deficiencies in positioning, I think they mean that if you can get 50 million euros for him, that is still an extraordinary deal. That doesn't necessarily mean Gary Cahill is, is the right player. And I think we, you know, we've seen that Mourinho's lost a little bit of faith with Cahill, the fact he's been playing Kurt Zuma more. Zuma is also not a great pass to the ball. So probably you're right. Probably they do need a a more creative, a more um, a better pass to the ball in that, in that position. But this seems to be the way that, that Mourinho's gone, that he, he wants a defence that sits quite deep. Uh, he wants a defence that... That that is sort of strong in the, in the traditional ways of of, of defending, um, and that I think is is another sort of worrying issue. That uh, you, you you look at that at the you know, centre of Chelsea's defence, you see Cahill and Terry, you think you know two great headers of the ball. You look at Courtois, very very good on crosses. So how on earth are they so vulnerable on you know, from set plays from crosses? And this isn't something that's only was only the case last night. If you look back. I think eight of the first 11 goals Chelsea conceded this season came from crosses. Now, you can blame that on the fullbacks, maybe not giving enough cover. You can blame it on the wide midfielders, not protecting the fullbacks enough. But that's been an ongoing issue. Um, having said that, it's not a structural issue when it's set plays. It's a, that's a mental issue, an organisational issue. Yeah, but the mental side of it is interesting because if Louise is anything, he's mentally quite strong he certainly feels maybe feels he's a bit better than he is Barney Roney wrote an interesting uh, piece in the Guardian about this uh, around the the time of the first leg he says this high class but still evolving Chelsea could probably do the dusting of this now and then the kind of infectious slightly loopy champion spirit that means while David Luiz might lose his way at the odd set piece or fail to man mark he's still capable of striding around on one leg for 120 minutes of a Champions League final with the air of a man who never at any stage believes he's going to lose is there a sense that some of the Chelsea players don't quite have that 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 belief that they're not going to lose. The, 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 I was about to mention Oscar as one. Maybe he's an easy one to pick on. But it was funny. Mourinho on the sideline yesterday seemed to have to cajole his players an awful lot. At one stage, he's having this running commentary with Diego Costa. He's given it to Costa. Costa comes over to him to confront him, basically. Later on, something similar happens with with William. I think it was at the end of 90 minutes, and he ends up hugging William to say, look, it's okay, I'm just saying, you've got to try a little bit hard. Really weird, I thought, that it seemed like a, a, a real Sunday League-style thing where the manager's having to just get the lads going a bit. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. And, and I guess it's then... Is that to do with the personalities of the players or is it to do with with, with Mourinho and, and the way he motivates people? I mean, that is something he's always been excellent at. That the other team always blinks first. And, and you saw that even last season with the PSG game or you you think back to the semi-final between Inter and Barca in 2010 and, and Mourinho was this, this great adamantine figure that seemed to have no doubt. And I, I know it's a point you, you've made before, Ken, that whether there is a little bit of doubt has crept into Mourinho, possibly a natural effect of age or possibly the trauma of Real Madrid, that he doesn't quite have that same absolute self-confidence that he's had in the past. And, and that is manifesting in, a, in doubts on the pitch and, and a, a strange lack of ruthlessness given what we expect from Mourinho's sides. Well, he, he sometimes, he, he, you know... Any, what Mourinho was doing was always, to, to an extent, a confidence trick. You know, he was never actually, never actually had magical powers, even if it did seem that way for a while. And th- maybe there's a, the kind of darting-eyed, you know, worry that you've been rumbled a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, haunting Jose Mourinho. I mean, he does, he does seem a bit defeatist to me. 
his attitude, you know, in extra time, you know, the, he seems most animated now when there isn't a penalty given that he thinks should be given for him. That's when he, you, you see Diego Costa having a tantrum on the field when that happens. And then you look at Mourinho's reaction, it's actually even worse. Um, but this is kind of, it is the nightmare that, that, uh, that kept sort of enveloping the Real Madrid team that's described at such length in that uh, Diego Torres book, is it not? This, uh, this inability to, uh, to break down teams, you know, t- defensive teams, well-organized teams, particularly in home games. This is the same thing that's happened to Mourinho again. And I, I kind of wonder at this point if... I mean, what, what happened at Real Madrid was that the players got really angry. It, it, it started to hurt their reputation. Everyone was saying, oh, these great attacking stars can't seem to, uh, can't seem to you know, beat uh, poor sides. And they were kind of making the point, well... You know, we can't play really at our maximum in the straitjacket that we're expected to play in. And it seems to be happening again. Yeah, I mean, th- there may be an element of that. But, I, you know, I think last night, and certainly last season, you saw that um, the, the, the failure to break down uh, teams he sat deep against them was a major problem and, and ended up costing them the title. I think we all thought that, that Chelsea had, had alleviated and Fabregas in the summer. But I, mean, I think last night... It wasn't really about that. It was it was a, about this this sort of this weird timorousness that, um, that you know nil nil draw would have been all right for them. And, and as soon as Latan sent off, you got an hour to keep a clean sheet, which against ten men surely Chelsea back themselves to do that, and yet they they they, they couldn't do it. But I, I do wonder if there's something bigger going on there. That I think you see it. I mean, you saw it for instance with Herrera's Inter. That if you if you play on paranoia, if you create this siege mentality, if you create this very negative, sulfurous atmosphere, if everything is about, oh, everybody's against us, we've got to stop the opposition, it's not about us expressing ourselves, eventually that culture of negativity becomes in itself inhibiting. And that perhaps prevents, I mean, maybe that is the straitjacket you're talking about, that, that um, the, 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 the doubts and negative projection ends up being projected back on, on, on the team itself. Jonathan, Diddy Hamman was on Irish TV last night and he called Diego Costa a nutcase. Do you agree? I mean, his, his capacity to avoid red cards is absolutely extraordinary. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. How, how was he not sent off last night? I mean, I, I, there was an incident very early on which um, left uh, David Luiz on the ground. And I, I also have to say, I didn't see it. And as far as I'm aware, there was never a replay on TV of exactly what happened. But something happened. So he was obviously playing with fire there. And that then led to, to David Luiz's retaliation. And now, yeah, they were sort of taking little pops at each other all night. So it wouldn't have taken much for, for that to develop into a red card right, for either player. You then had the, 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 the terrible late tackle on, um, on Thiago Silva, where he got a yellow card. But on another day, it, it could have been a red. And then he pushed over Marquinhos when he was already on a yellow. So, uh, you know, he, he, he walked a very... I was going to say walked a very narrow tightrope. I don't know if that metaphor works, but he, he was extremely close to the red card last night, which, you know, you, you can say that he's a player who has to play on the edge, that the, 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 the dark arts are part of his game. But shoving over Marquinhos when the, you know, the ball's in the goalkeeper's hands is just stupidity. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there is the fact that the, um, the Premier League, I mean, in the kind of bigger picture, had seven out of eight finalists between 2005 and 2012, and now, or rather, finalists in seven out of eight years, I should say. And now, this is probably going to be the third year, assuming Arsenal don't manage to turn it around, this is going to be the third year without a finalist, which is a, uh, I mean, that's that's definitely turning into a trend, isn't it? I think it is now, yeah. I mean, um, I was slightly sceptical of whether it was a trend two or three years ago, but it, it keeps on happening. 
And I think, given the amount of money in the English game, it's, it's actually slightly slightly embarrassing that um, that there is this persistent failure. Uh, and, and the thing is, it's not just a failure to live up to, to Bayern Munich or Barcelona or Real Madrid, the, the obvious elite. If, if that was the issue, well, you sort of accept their great sides and, and maybe um, you know you're just not quite that good. But this is not a good PSG side. You know, they're not even top in France when they have, where they have a huge financial advantage. And Chelsea, really, over two legs, never never looked the better side. Um, Arsenal against Monaco. Again, Monaco are far from a great side. They're injury-ravaged at, at the Emirates, and yet fully deserved their win. Um, OK, City against Barcelona. They've met a Barcelona who are coming back into form. Maybe you accept that a little bit more. But even the manner of, of, of the way they lost that game was... Yeah, you know, it, it wasn't two great teams slugging each other and one comes out on top. It was a very, very good side and a less good side and a very, very good side won and probably should have won more comfortably. So I think that is a is a concern. I mean, it's not an immediate concern in terms of the coefficient and four English teams qualifying for Champions League. And I don't think Italian football is strong enough that that's going to become an issue in the near future. But still, I, you know, I, I think there's got to be a, a serious period of introspection and, and questions asked as to why the huge financial advantages that English clubs enjoy doesn't translate into not even necessarily success in Europe, but even sort of competence in Europe. Jonathan, just very briefly, we've been debating the rights and wrongs of the Zlatan sending off. For you, was it was it a clear-cut case of an incorrect red card? Yeah. I mean, when I first saw it, I, I was... It, it, something looked wrong about it. And then as soon as you see the replay, you see that actually both players have launched in. OK, Oscar's got there first. And if Zlatan had kept going with... with yeah, the, the, the full force of his feet, fair enough. But he clearly sort of pulled out and ended up almost going in the shin first. So, no, I think it was it was pretty clearly wrong. Mm, okay, well, you're with Ken on this one. Jonathan, we'll leave, we'll leave it on that note anyway. Thanks a million. Cheers, thanks. Andrew, that's the question. That's going to be asked answer tonight. Tonight. So now, come here tonight, tonight, into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight, their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just, the bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. No, I think Hawk have made a massive boo-boo with our matchups. Massive boo-boo. Tonight, 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 tonight. Ooh. I didn't realise you'd stayed up late, Ken, to re-watch the game. Although, I did note this morning when I woke up, uh, the email my inbox from you, uh, flagging those Jose Mourinho quotes, was sent at 1.29am. Yeah, but you're a night out anyway, so I didn't, I didn't figure that as anything. It anyway. never, it just, it just never stops. So this obsession just won't, won't let me rest, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But I, I did want to look back at it because I was like, did they really do nothing? Did they, did, did Chelsea, you know? I mean, the, the funny thing was, I mean, I was thinking about it today. The jo, Giovanni Trapattoni is actually quite a similar coach to Jose Mourinho in a lot of ways. Similar priorities. You know, similar like a big club manager, a big personality. You know, um, loved by some of his players, not so much by others. Uh, but very much in the, in that kind of old school, we're gonna be tough. We're gonna be uh, organized. We're gonna be clever. We're not gonna take too many risks. There was w- only one game that I can think of in Trapattoni's time as our manager that turned into an act- actual tactical chess match. I'm not saying that Trapattoni wasn't interested in tactics. I mean, he had a very very uh, clear idea of the tactics he wanted the team to play and they just never really changed. There was one game which was different, which was the game away to Italy in 2009. 
And this was a weird game because Italy had a man sent off after three minutes. Um, and Trapattoni spent the whole game sort of jiggling players around to different positions, trying to find a way through. It was He was on the touchdown all the time. I don't know if it's just that he was back in Italy and he felt the need to perform a little <laughs> bit, you know, but but it it really, it was the one time that I saw him do that, like make lots of changes. He made a substitution after, a few, you know, 20 minutes or so. The difference there, I, I suppose, was that Italy also scored after 11 minutes. So Ireland were chasing uh, the match against 10 men. Whereas last night were Chelsea faced an ostensibly similar situation where they had... Uh, they were up against 10 men for what turned out to be 90 minutes. They were actually only chasing a goal for six minutes. You know what I mean? They were only behind for six minutes in the tie. Mm. Um, so Mourinho was... They were, they, but they're only half a goal ahead, you know, an away goal ahead. So they, they led by, by more very briefly, but only for a couple of minutes at a time. PSG kind of kept equalising. Now, he was not... But I thought that it was, the, it was dereliction by Mourinho to continue playing as though Paris Saint-Germain had 11 men. That's really what he did. You know, once they went down to 10, he's thinking, well, we're still in the lead and the lead is good enough. So let's just oh, yeah, keep look, it as it if is. If I'm Jose Mourinho and I'm looking at it, and Jose Mourinho said this after the game, oh, my players couldn't cope. Set pieces. There's another example. Set mm. pieces. They can't defend set pieces. I know people always say, oh, it's the coaches. That's one area where it's all about the coaching. The coaches decide the... And Rafa Benitez used to always get probably unfair abuse over the amount of goals Liverpool conceded at corners because he deigned to do something different to what was usually done in British football and yeah. mark space rather than marking player for player. But Chelsea are generally very good both at attacking and defending set pieces. And oftentimes it's because... This is in the days even uh, when Robert Huth was around. I always remember Robert Huth and John Terry were great at the mm. one-man blocks... Uh, an, an opposition player and then the other man usually Terry comes in and heads the ball into the net yesterday if you saw it Cahill for that final goal Cahill and, and Terry Terry blocked each other but yeah. they didn't even seem to realise that the person they, oh, they no, were grappling with own man. was their own man it was an incredible uh, brain freeze at yeah. a really important time it, was, it wasn't just a split second it seemed to go on for a couple of seconds <laughs> there's all this grappling <laughs> oh, no. what's going <laughs> and, on and, and, and no instinct takes hard. over so that's that's player that's a, that's a bad mistake by your two most important defensive players. Yeah, but defenders are going to make mistakes. You know, that's you, you have to accept that it's going to happen. Sometimes you're, you're going to let it go from a corner. It's just one of those things. 2% of corners result in a goal, I think. Not often you get two in one match <laughs> in that way, but it's not often you get headers of that quality coming in. Sometimes that's going to happen. That's why it's always a good idea to try and score yourself. You know, you can't rely on your team just just shutting down the game. And that's what Mourinho tried to do. But Trapattoni won a lot of trophies like that. Mourinho's won a lot of trophies like that. Mm. So you can actually rely on that if you have the personnel in place to do it. I, th- I think Mourinho, Mourinho hasn't won as many trophies recently. I mean, he did win the League Cup. That was his first for, what, three seasons since 2012. Um, he's not as successful as he was in the first part of his of his career, no, but he should win. I the think Premier this League has become more. Prince, I think he, I think he will win the Premier League. You know, it's it's almost like being, you know, sort of the tallest dwarf in the Premier League this year. <laughs> you know, Man- Manchester City ha- have repeatedly self sabotaged. You know, Manchester United are, are still the same as last season in, in many respects. Arsenal the same. Liverpool dramatic decline. Um, there hasn't really been a. 
you know, Chelsea almost by main, by maintaining their form from last year. I remember they've been they've been powerfully reinforced. You know, uh, Diego Costa, Fabregas, Felipe Luis, and, and all that. Not that he uses Felipe Luis much, but um, they're not much better than last season. They, you know, when you look at when you compare their records, they're quite similar at the same stage of the season. Uh, point for point, everyone else is worse. Um, I, I'm talking specifically about a game like that, though. Playing against ten men for an, at least one hour is an opportunity to go and absolutely put this game beyond doubt. You should be able to do that. Chelsea should have that 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 mode. You know what I mean? It's they they sometimes are playing against ten men, and you've got to have something else besides just this. Oh well, they played as though Paris Saint Germain eleven men. I'm looking at Marina thinking, what are you doing? Where's your contribution here? Where are the ideas now? Even Trapattoni, you know, when it was then, Trapattoni was like, oh, we've well, got to get Paul McShane off. You know, Caleb Folan. Okay, it ultimately we battered the door of Italy down with, with long balls from Shea Given. But he did try a number of things before then. He was switching players from side to side. You know, he's changing formations. He was at least doing something. Chelsea was just as frozen. Oh, well, we're still in the lead. Let's just, let's just hold what we have. And that's not ultimately going to be enough. You have to have more trust in your players than that. I think it's inhibiting for the players. You know, as you mentioned, the scene with Willian, where he was he was shouting at Willian, and then and then he came over and like hugged him. He's like, yeah, but he was shouting at him just before the end of full time, and the full time whistle was blown. I think that could have been. It was a, I'm not sure if the whistle had been blown, uh, if the game was still in play when he first started shouting at him. But yeah, he was giving him abuse. Uh, then Williams kind of looking at him saying, "Oh, what, what, what am I doing but wrong?" Boss, I'm trying to please you. I'm trying to please you in every way. You know, the, these players. It's it's almost as though they're. Uh, I, I do think it's inhibiting. You have to say to your players, "Okay, you know, let's go and win the game." I mean, yeah, but when Costa came over, the same thing happened with Costa during the game, and Costa just came over. It's like, Costa's, what's your what's your what's your issue here, Jose? Marina's no, no, no. You're fine. You're okay. You're all right. There you go. Diego Costa is not a reasonable man. No. You know he. Like his, he was ridiculous last night. He really was, and and you know, I know we were saying earlier he was exhausted. And, you know, you do have to. He he was tired. He's clearly not at his best physically. Technically, he wasn't at his best, but he was ridiculous. He was he was embarrassing. You know, he's not helping when he when he behaves that way. But it's 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 clear that he can't help himself. So that's that's going to be a problem. You spoke to Emma Malone at the Martin O'Neill press while not looking at um, at lewd cartoons again. You uh, listened to what Martin O'Neill had to say and spoke to uh, fellow journalists. It wasn't a lewd cartoon. Well, there was a penis was in the a guy's satiric- head. It was a satirical cartoon. There was a penis on his head, but it wasn't a graphically <laughs> represented penis. It was it was a almost a stylized or symbolic penis. Sure. <laughs> uh, what were we talking to Emma Malone about? Well... The obviously the Ireland squad's been announced. Thirty five men, it turned out, not the thirty four originally announced. Thirty five who then added in. And that was I think the first thing that we that myself and Emma mentioned. It looked as though we were gonna have a volcanic press conference as once again uh you know, we were talking about what are we gonna do? We were looking at Wes Hulahan's goal on YouTube, you know. Uh, his his goal against Millwall from the, from the week, and what do we do when O'Neill comes in? Do we like hold up the computer, like playing this goal? You know, hold it up like a holy you know icon and say you know and challenge Martin O'Neill to tell us why he's left Wes Hulahan out. He hadn't left him out; it was a clerical error. Uh, and I guess if if he had left him out, was my first suggestion to Emmett, maybe that would have been a more controversial press conference than it in fact was. 
It's, uh, it's funny, it's the, the modern age. I think half, of, half the people in the room had tweeted that Wes wasn't in the squad by the time um, they realised themselves that he wasn't. I think they probably they probably learned of his own exclusion by, by Twitter. Um, yeah, so uh, so they, they put him in. So it's, uh, yeah, it would have been it would have been quite the press conference if Wes had been somehow left out of a 34-man squad. But in fact, it turns out it's a 35-man squad, so all is well. Um, Martin O'Neill, generally, I thought it seemed quite positive today. It seems as though four months away has, yeah. has done good. I think he's always generally pretty positive. I, I think the uh, whole Roy Keane thing was beginning to grate on his nerves by the, by the last time we met with the, the day before, certainly the USA game. Um, but, you know, I mean, it, that was sort of coming to a head at the time. And um, from that point of view, I, I suppose a few months away have given him time to, to freshen up a bit and, um, and grow less weary of us again. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I think he's, he's up for it. Um, I think he's a guy who has made really clear from the outset that he thrives on games. And if you think back to when he was appointed, that's what everyone was talking about, that this was a guy who could, you know, prepare teams to get out on the pitch and do their best. Um, that that was, you know, the, that, that was the environment in which he, he really excelled. And I think that's been the drawback of the job for him, that, uh, that there are so few games. He's been upfront about that um, from the outset. But here is a really big game, a really, really big game. It's not like the Germany one in that, you know, we're not on a kind of hiding to nothing sort of stuff or hoping to get something against the odds. This is a game we have to win. It's a game we, I think he'll think we can win. Um, so it's, it's really set up for him, I think. There is a new player in squad, it's Arthur from, yeah. uh, from Bournemouth. Is that a... Do you think... Looking back um, over the, what, 13 or 14 months it's been, is that return pleasing to you in terms of the, the number of the number of players that are coming through? It's been longer, it's been longer than 13 or 14 months, 16 months maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, look, I, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see whether Arthur makes the squad of 23. At the moment, he's in a squad of 35. Um, and uh, O'Neill has talked about having the opportunity to have a look at him and Arthur having earned that, that opportunity, uh, which is not, you know, a massive commitment on anybody's side. Uh, Arthur's been playing well in a team that's going well in the championship. He's, he's in, a, in a better position club-wise than quite a few members of this squad. And so I think that is the least he, he, uh, he, he deserves. I think it's a difficult situation for O'Neill. I kind of have some sympathy with him in the general kind of outlook that there are not a, a bunch of players breaking down the door here. And he clearly has some you know, strong ideas about who he wants in the squad and what, you know, what sort of player. Um, but no, it's frustrating that there haven't been more people coming in. And, and um, uh, you would like to have seen certainly you know, somebody like you know, Patrick Bamford, who's played uh, underage football um, for us and then played underage football for England, uh, lured back in. Partly on the basis that it, you would really see this guy has been in the shakeup to be playing uh, mm. for us at this stage, whereas he's a long way off that for England. So, um, but but I don't doubt that O'Neill wants that too. I mean, I, I can't imagine he's turning his nose up at too much talent. Mm. I mean, Grealish obviously came up today, yeah. much hyped player. It's been the case for a long time, sure. uh, and O'Neill said that he hasn't hasn't actually really pursued, hasn't hasn't taken any more steps to try and you know reel Jack Grealish in, which. Uh, the situation does sound less promising, really, every time it's spoken about. Yeah, yeah, it does, really. Uh, it's gone on for quite a while. Tim Sherwood last week was it saying that he expects um, uh, Grealish to play for England at some stage. I, I mean, I don't know whether that's based on anything or whether it's just top-of-the-head stuff from Sherwood. Um, but certainly, uh, he, you know, Noel King uh, named a squad earlier this week and said that Grealish had asked uh, to be omitted again. That's four games in a row. I think he's pulled out of one, the first squad then, has asked to be omitted from the other three while he weighs up his options. I mean, it's difficult to draw any other conclusion from any of this. Um, 
uh, Villa are certainly in a difficult situation and um, he may see that as an opportunity uh, and, and one that he doesn't want um, thwarted in any way by a mishap on international duty, particularly at under-21 under level. He's not going to be a starter, I don't think, in an Irish team or, or even feature in a competitive game for Ireland. So perhaps he sees there's no harm in, in kicking it down the road. But the signs are not wildly positive at the moment, that's, mm. that's for sure. And O'Neill clearly thinks that sort of less is more from, from his own point of view, that there isn't really any point in, uh, in actively trying to persuade him or tempt him over, which, which seems to be an attitude that Ireland take quite, a lot, quite, quite often with players who, who are a bit undecided. I mean, Stephen Ireland is a, is a famous recent yeah. example where... You know, he'd obviously decided to pull out, but it wasn't as though we really went out of our way to to try and talk well, him back. Do you know what? I don't know. Stephen Ireland, I mean, there's a famous kind of Trapatoni meeting with him. I, I, I'm personally of the opinion, I, I don't really know too much about what's gone on behind the scenes with Grealish and what his attitude has been. There are a variety of versions, I think, of how you get to this point. And, and according to those different versions, the player comes out of it more or less credit according to... Um, According to the, from the manager's point of view, I, I didn't have too much sympathy for Ireland, and, no. I, and I'd, I'd lost interest in. I, I thought the manager was in a position where he was really being required to humiliate himself yeah. to Stephen Ireland a long time before, you know, he, he started to be written off. He was still being asked about in press conferences of Trapattoni at a point where I thought Trapattoni was entirely justified in uh, in in leaving him to one side and adopting pretty much the same position which O'Neill has now and, and Trapattoni did um but he got more more hassle about it which is that the player has to just make it absolutely publicly clear without equivocation that he wants to play for Ireland and he's available to do so and Ireland has never done that. He's no, just no. whatever is up with the guy. You and, know? I think, and I think he also, uh, he definitely lost respect from, from a lot of other players in the squad. And maybe it got to the point yeah. where if you, were to, if you were to actually bring him back or try to persuade him, then the players are saying, well, you know, why are we doing this? Um, is that actually a factor, do you think, with, with Greatish as well? I mean, we've, we've got 35 players in this, in this squad as it is. Yeah. All of them appear to be happy to turn up. That if Martin O'Neill was, was seen to be trying to, you know, get this, you know, a 36th player to sort of join in when 35 are already coming, that, that yeah. the rest of the players are going, well, you know, why are we... You well, know? I do think there's a difference between um, somebody like Grealish or Bamford or, you know, whoever it is, you know, what would these guys who are eligible for um, to play for England and us? And that is a different situation. And I think the players themselves realise that, that a manager has to build for the future, that it's part of his job to get these players who are eligible for us to declare for us. Um, and so from that point of view, I think that the, the other players make some sort of allowances for, the, for that. They also realise in many cases, because they've, in some of them have been in that position themselves, some of them have dealt with players or no players who have been in that position, um, that that's a very serious consideration. And there are a variety of factors going on there, whether it's pressure from family, pressure from agents, pressure from clubs, um, you know, that, that, that influenced that decision. Uh, that obviously wasn't the case in the case in, in the instance of Stephen Ireland that I'm aware of. Like you know, it was like he he he, he was either going to come on. We should probably just duty. stop talking about Stephen. Oh, yeah, people are going to get annoyed. Maybe, yeah, people yeah, are going to get annoyed yeah. even hearing us talk about it. Well, yeah, maybe. But <laughs> yeah, you know, my memory of it was with him where he was either going to come on international duty or he was going to like you know f- you know feed the fish in the world's biggest fish tank. You know, I, like uh, for three days. I, I like there was no there was no alternative international options open to him. You know, yeah. uh, and uh, I'm sure there were a lot of relieved international managers out there that he wasn't. He wasn't somebody they were going to get persecuted about in, in press conferences. Uh, these guys are different. Uh, I think that is part of the deal for O'Neill. I think it's it's disappointing or frustrating that more players haven't been included in in, in the um, 
in in the shake-up here or aren't, aren't featuring more prominently. But at the same time, you look at the level that he's bringing players in from, McGoldrick from Ipswich, um, Christie. Um, it's a decent bit. Christie in particular has a bit of promise to him or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, who's going to displace? The, yeah. That's at the very top level. But, yeah. um, uh, do you think that Ireland has become... They say the increasing commercialisation of, of the you know professional players' yeah. lives is, is something which increasingly counts against Ireland. That may be... I mean, I remember reading, for instance, in Graeme Souness' autobiography, published 30 years ago now, I think, that he has a chapter entitled I wish I'd played I wish I'd been born English which is obviously a provocation but his argument was well I would have made a lot more money as an England international and he's talking about in the 70s and 80s so it must be um, yeah I think so there's definitely a a sense that they're more marketable I remember the uh, then chief executive of the IFA talking about um, the dispute between uh, them and, and the FAI over over players, and him saying, "Well, if there was a free for all, everyone would declare for England." Now, this was a somewhat misguided uh, uh, comment, and it seemed to kind of fail to grasp some of the finer points of the political and social situation in Northern Ireland. Um, which, as an outsider, he probably should have familiarised himself with a little bit better. But I do think there's a grain of truth there to the desirability on a commercial level or you know a career level to to declaring for England, um, where that pressure comes from I think varies in case to case I think we've had Niall Keown this week uh, declaring for the under 21s and being selected in that squad talking about his father Martin getting um, a lot of stick from the family when he played for England there was a family that was very very firmly rooted in the Irish community uh, I think that both, both his parents uh, both Martin's parents were actually Irish uh, they, they emigrated to England and I think in Martin's case he made a very I think honourable decision on the one hand that um, that he owned it to the, to the community that had brought him up um, to, to play for them but on the other hand it was also a time when there was a lot of tension in Irish communities and around Irish communities um, because of, uh, of of the uh, violence in, in the north and, uh, which also you know affected Britain um, pretty horrendously from time to time so there were, there were big factors there from the family uh, both pro and cons um, but I think all the time there's been pressure from clubs because clubs you know see the, the players as more marketable in the case of players from further afield in Ireland, there's less travel involved. Um, but, but first and foremost, um, they, they're just bigger attractions and they, 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 they lend kudos to a club um, to have more England internationals in a way that having Republic of Ireland internationals really clearly doesn't do it. And I think probably agents play a part in that because their own income it depends on getting a percentage of the wages and the transfer fees and everything that those players generate. And anything that, 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 that enhances those is good for them so there's a lot of things counting against us here and and I think in those situations it's understandable that an 18 and 19 year old um, weighs up those options it's sad that there aren't more like Kevin Kilban or Mick McCarthy who were born in England but who just have it clear in their head that look deep into their heart and know in their heart of hearts they are Irish Lee Carsley I think was another one they feel Irish uh, they always want to play for Ireland but you know that's the reality of the rules we, we operate in and, 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 and the world we live in Just the last one I remember is uh, Robbie Keane you know, came up again today uh, there, was a, there was a question I mean obviously he uh, related to the fact that he you know obviously missed the uh, Missed out in the last game, uh, and the question about Mar- uh, yeah, yeah. And Martin O'Neill um, in the broadcast uh, press conference said, "Well, you know, look at his record. Look down the list of, of goals there, and you'll yeah. see there's not too many players with his goals, which is true. But if he, if the team was picked on record, he would have played against Scotland, and he would in fact play every single game. So it's it's an irrelevant. Uh, O'Neill was 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 kind of heading that question off by citing an irrelevant fact. How, how do you think Robbie Keane actually stands with him now? I think he still stands as, as, as pretty important to him. I think it was interesting that... Number one important? 
He's a captain as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, look, I, I mean, I thought the, the, the decision to uh, drop him for the Scotland game was an interesting one. I was slightly surprised by it. I thought he would play there. Um, but uh, the difficulty there is that Shane Long remains the main uh, alternative. And Shane Long is a man who steadfastly refuses to seize his opportunities with the Ireland team. Um, he, they come along, you know, fairly irregularly, but in almost every instance, there's a head of steam builds up about, um, about you know, him being the man that we should be playing up there. And, and he just he never really kind of steals a show for you. Um, so in those sort of circumstances, I think uh, Keane remains important. I think, you know, in a home game um, that, that we really need to win, He's, he's still the one that seems more likely to score goals. Uh, I, I appreciate that there is an argument um, that is re- regularly made. I know you've made it yourself um, very strongly and well, uh, that he looks stranded, um, uh, very remote in a I team. I vacillate on him all the time, though. I mean, you know, it's <laughs> nobody, nobody else scores. If nobody else scores, then yeah. what are you left with? No, 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 absolutely. And I, and I agree with that. I, like, you look at the charts of the kind of his movement and compared to the team, and it's depressing stuff. But, uh, but the bottom line is um, if, uh, if you want somebody one on one with a goalkeeper, then uh, I'd prefer it's him to anyone else that we have. Uh, long. God, if he just fulfilled his potential, you know, if he could finish in the in the way he seems to be able to do so many other things, um, then then I think Robbie would would be quickly fading off the scene. But um, I, I, it's interesting. I mean, that we saw him a few weeks ago play against Shamrock Rovers, and he just look, he just the lack of pace was really starting. I know it's a pre-season game, um, but the limitations are, are there for all to see. The idea that he's going to play for another five years, uh, even you know, even in the MLS is pretty remarkable, you know, because there are definite signs of decline there. But for the moment, for the rest of this campaign, I still see him being an important player. It's great, Emmett. Thanks for me. Cheers. What do you think about that uh, issue you raised there via the Graeme Souness book of there being a certain status, including financial, to playing for England as opposed to Scotland or Ireland that could potentially be in people's players' heads? Oh, definitely. I mean... uh... It definitely was the case uh, with Soonis. I mean, Soonis explains it in the book. Um, and, and I don't know if it's become more important or, or less. I'd say probably more, actually. Um, as, as I mean, in Soonis' case, it was, you know, during the 70s and 80s, obviously the sort of commercial side of football was nowhere near as developed as it now is. But you could still do these nice little learners. You get lots of little learners. And England players have definitely got more of them. Now, I'd say now you can you can obviously make more money. As a share of your overall income, it's probably even grown. You know, you're talking about vastly greater sums of money. Um, and I think it is probably something they think about. I mean, I think the first thing they probably think about is, in the realistic sense, do I have a chance of becoming an England international? Or am I just going to be, you know... Scott Parker or Kevin Nolan. You know what I mean? And that's uh, maybe there are bad examples, actually, because they were just a little bit too close. They were just a little bit, you know, the, the, the opportunity was just a little bit too realistic for them. Whereas, you know, uh, that's, that's something that, that players will think about. I mean, maybe that's a bad way to look at it. You know, the players, it shouldn't be a case of, well, I'm clearly not good enough to play for England. Maybe I'll consider Ireland. It shouldn't be that way. But I think it is that way for a lot of, for a lot of guys. And I think money does definitely come into it. All right, I've waited long enough here, Ken. It is time to declare victory. Victory, that is, in the war on non-celebration celebrations. All it took was one brave soldier, one man who was willing to show his true feelings upon <laughs> scoring a goal against his former club. That man, Ken? Was Danny Welbeck. Danny Welbeck. Quite a likely candidate we consider the manager of his old club, Louis Van Gaal, had said publicly, he pretty much said he was no good. Yeah. I mean, this guy's, what are you talking about? I know he's been here since he was nine, but he doesn't score any goals. No, he doesn't <laughs> so, score. <laughs> uh, so the floodgates are open now. Step forward, David Luiz. He said before the tie he wasn't going to do it. He apologised afterwards for doing it, but he did it. 
and I salute him. You can argue that the war has not been won, that many other players in the future will score against their old team and respond by, you know, the, the way they do, turning yeah. themselves into a stone. Yeah. But uh, that's true. That is true. That will happen. But we can recognise now that that non-celebration is a false and empty gesture. It's a false and empty. It's, 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 uh, it's fundamentally insincere. It makes everybody feel bad. Uh, it's so much better when the player... I'm not necessarily suggesting you have to go the full Adebayor. Oh, I am suggesting that. Oh, yeah? Yeah, go full Adebayor. I mean, the thing- I'd say Louise and Welbeck both got close. Welbeck nearly checked himself after a little bit. It's not that he went from celebration into non-celebration, but he went from, se- from really hectic celebration into slightly more muted. Yeah, you know, but we all we all saw Harry really fell for that moment. <laughs> exactly. I mean, there have been, you know, isolated instances. I mean, I remember David Villa, for instance. David Villa scored for Atletico Madrid against Barcelona um, after Barcelona let him go. One of the first games of the of the next season was against Barcelona. He scored a great goal. He really let them have it. You know, he <laughs> you could see. Okay, this is not a man who's entirely happy about how things how things how things finished there. I don't think it should have to be a reflection though of of bitterness towards your old club. I don't think David Luiz, for instance, left Chelsea on particularly bad terms. I mean, he was probably as any player is. Oh, you don't think I'm that good? Okay, well, fine. Well, no, he didn't even particularly bad terms. But everybody's been gloating. Anyone connected with Chelsea? Any, a lot of pundits, Eamon Dunphy again last night talking about how much of a laugh it is that Jose Mourinho managed to get 50 million, as though they'd sold a complete turkey for Absolutely. an insane amount of money. I mean, look, you know, David Luiz uh, cost, actually, the sum that they sold him for is now worth £35 million. Pounds. Um, he uh, cost them a lot of money last night. So I don't know if they're even in profit on the deal now, considering they paid £22 million pounds to Benfica to sign him in the first place. Uh, is he a better player than Eliakim Mangala, who Manchester City paid £43 million pounds in total for? Clearly he is. So I don't know if it was necessarily the, the deal of the century. I mean, Mourinho, I'm sure, would say, look, I sold Louise, I bought Costa, I bought Fabregas, team's better, you know, everyone's happy. But And everyone was happy. I think in, in Louise's case, it wasn't the case of, I've got a grudge against this old club, so much as I've just scored one of the greatest headers anyone's ever seen. Exactly, I've scored for my current team, regardless yeah. of scoring against my I've scored an amazing goal I have, here, let's celebrate. We have been the victims of injustice here, we all saw what happened with Zlatan, I have equalised, I have done it for my team. Who knows what he'd been saying to all the Chelsea players as well during the game. Whatever it was, Diego Costa didn't like it. I just felt a little sorry for John Terry at the end though. Why? Because he looked sad. You know, he looked sad to me. Well, of course. And I thought to myself, John Terry is probably never going to win the Champions League now. I mean, if he's still around... Well, he won it before. Did he, though? Well, yeah, he was in the kit. I saw the photos. He must have played. I just saw a photo of it there last week. You know he who was actually... He full Chelsea kit with the trophy. I assume he was playing that day. He actually got himself sent off in the semi-final that time. What? Oh, and, and his team managed to qualify without him. Extraordinary. Uh, despite being down to 10 men away to Barcelona. And he then didn't play in the final. Huh. You know who did play? Well, I actually don't know who played for Terry. It was David Luiz, Owen. So thank God that at least David Luiz was there to let John Terry bask in a little bit of his reflected glory that time. Thanks for listening to the Football Podcast. We've got Cheltenham Gold Cup tips on our latest show. Also Shane Horgan and Shane Williams looking ahead to Ireland versus Wales. Thanks very much, Ken. Thank you too, Owen. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you soon. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.